an unreached people group within the huge uh, population that is China. Uh, and uh, we have people from Kazakhstan, Indonesia, uh, and uh, then we also have people who are working amongst the unreached uh, people in Thailand and in Cambodia, particularly uh, those uh, uh, within Buddhism. It's always exciting to meet with this group of people because our aim is to reach out to those who don't have a chance to hear about Jesus. And to work with such people and to be involved in such a task is a wonderful privilege. Uh, when uh, the suggestion came that uh, we uh, uh, about speaking here this morning, and the passage is Nehemiah chapter 6, and I thought, wow, I love this passage. Mind you, I love most passages from Genesis 1 to Revelation chapter 22. Um, so this is one of them. So Nehemiah 6, and I'd like to read it to you. Uh, now, I know my wife and my daughters say that uh, their father and husband likes to hear the sound of his own voice, but uh, I love reading scripture. And so I'm going to read from uh, what is the version that I use mostly, which is the Revised Standard Version. Uh, but if you have a Bible, you can follow. Perhaps it'll come up on the screen. I'm not sure. Uh, but uh, let's hear the Word of God. Now, when it was reported to Sanballat and Tobiah and to Geshem the Arab and to the rest of our enemies that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, Although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, Come, let us meet together in one of the villages in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messages to them saying, I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Sanballat, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel, and that is why you are building the wall, and you wish to become their king, according to this report. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. And now it will be reported to the king according to these words. So now come and let us take counsel together. Then I sent to him saying, No such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking... Their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen thou my hands. Now when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehetabil, who was shut up, he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple and let us close the doors of the temple for they are coming to kill you at night. They are coming to kill you. 
But I said, should such a man as I flee? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin, so they could give me an evil name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, O my God, according to these things that they did, and also to the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month Elul, in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, and all the nations round about us were afraid, and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to, do, to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, and the son of Ara, and his son Jehonan, and taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. And also they spoke of his good deeds in my presence, and reported my words to him. And Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. Now when the wall had been built, and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem. For he was more faithful and God-fearing than many. And I said to them, Let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot, and while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, each to his station and each opposite to his own house. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few and no houses had been built. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this event which happened so long ago, almost two and a half thousand years ago, Help us today to learn from it. May your spirit speak to us so that we can see your hand at work in our lives here in Australia, in this world, in the 21st century. Father, I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. When I read this passage, I just feel the conspiracies I feel the networks going on it's a very very eastern story it's a story where they didn't need Facebook they didn't need hashtags and Twitter to communicate I know this sounds a little bit perhaps uh, uh, you know uh, not blasphemous but when uh, Walter and Janine and Rosan and I and the Johnsons were living in Bangladesh, I'd always felt that in Bangladesh that uh, actually Jesus went to Bangladesh before he went to Palestine. Because Jesus said, whatever you whisper in the, in the, in the secret rooms will be shouted from the rooftops. We used to have meetings in our, uh, our, our missionary community and we'd discuss things for days. 
All we needed to do was to go down to the corner and find out what was, people were saying in the tea shop to figure out what we should do because they seemed to know before we did. In very tight communities, there are no secrets. Now, we live in, uh, in Australia in a very individualistic society. Motor vehicles have made us so that we, we don't know what goes on in the neighbour's place. We travel, we change our houses, we don't stay in the same place. But we are different from most people throughout the world. And if we go back two and a half thousand years to uh, this place in Jerusalem, in uh, the middle of the, what, the fifth century BC, that everything was known. The people had lived there, had lived there for long periods of time. They knew everyone. They knew all their relationships. When I read here, you know, uh, we find that the, the, the Jews who were living there had intermarried with people like Tobiah and Sanballat and Geshem the Arab. And there'd been intermarriages. And so everyone knew one another. No secrets. And I think it's, uh, you know, it's a bit of a difficulty to read this stuff. It says, uh, he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Ara, and his son Johanan had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. It's taken me over 30 years to learn all the words that Bangladeshis have for their relatives. You know, in English, all you have is brother, sister, Mother, father, grandfather, grandmother, uh, cousin, uncles, aunties. That's about it. Any more? Niece, niece, nephew? Yeah. Okay. Not many more. But in Bangladesh, in the Muslim community, if I say someone's maternal uncle's wife, that person has a name. That's mummy. Not our mummy. But mummy, if it is your father's sister, then she is your fufu. Uh, and her husband, get this, is the fufa. <laughs> and then if you've got uh, a maternal uncle, uh, sorry, a paternal uncle, he's your cha-cha. <laughs> and, oh, the really cool one, his wife is chachi. <laughs> so... So there's all these relationships and you say one word and you know immediately all the relationships. Whereas for us, lazy us, you know, cousin, which cousin? Oh, this one, oh, you know, that, that. So we have to explain it. But you see, uh, Bengalis are much smarter than what uh, we are in the English language. One word, they know all the relationships. And you see, here... Who was married to who was important. But it's so Eastern. And there's so much uh, manoeuvring. But it's about opposition. It's about what they were trying to do to oppose Nehemiah in what God had called him to do. Now I said when I heard that it was Nehemiah 6, I thought, wow, because... 
I've had the privilege of being involved with people in being called to do a task. That's what Nehemiah was. Now, I'm sure you've heard about Nehemiah through the, the preceding weeks. But, you know, there he was. He was the cupbearer to the king, the Persian king, Artaxerxes. Now, I don't know why his mother gave him that name, but, you know, uh, that was his name, Artaxerxes. And, uh, and so he was the cupbearer. So he was a very high-ranking uh, official. And God put into his heart. I reread that, that call there. His brother Hananiah or Hananiah had come back to him and told him what the situation was in Jerusalem. And here is this prayer. And you find it in Nehemiah chapter 1. Uh, and he says... My Father, we have, it's, O Lord God of heaven, the great and terrible God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servants. Remember, remember. He goes and he, he, he he's almost reminding God of God's revelation to Moses. And he's called to go back and build the wall. But it's opposition that he finds. What sort of opposition? Well, you find that the, the enemy is a liar. Jesus said in John chapter 8, as people opposed him, he said, you are the children of your father. And your father was a liar from the beginning. And that is, the devil is a liar from the beginning. He teaches, he lies because that's his nature. I work, Walter works, we've worked amongst a people who believe that it is allowable to lie on four occasions. Those four occasions are uh, to your wife. <laughs> if, you have to, uh, if you have to save your own life in war, and there's one other, uh, which I've forgotten. So if I, if I sit in church, all right. <laughs> That's, uh, <laughs> I didn't want to say the last one in case I lied, you know. It's, uh, <laughs> but you see, and the why, why are they allowed to lie? Because that's allowable. And there is a theology within that huge group of people that says that God must be free and that if he wants to lie, he can lie. In Numbers chapter 23 and verse 19, it says this, God is not a man that he should lie. You see, God cannot lie. He will not lie to us. Now, of course, if you're like Abraham, he may not tell us all that's going to happen, but he won't lie to us. He will not lie. And you see, that is the nature of God. Why does not God lie? It is because of his nature. 
He does not lie. But you see here, Nehemiah, the, the enemies came. Now behind these enemies is the enemy of all uh, human beings. That is uh, the evil one, the devil. Now, <laughs> does he have horns? No, he doesn't. In talking with uh, some of my colleagues who work in Africa, uh, and I was talking about their ministry, they were talking about their ministry in Malawi and Mozambique, and they talk about how people are often possessed by evil spirits, and that sickness is very common, and that when they are asked to go and pray, they pray in the name of Jesus, and they often see miraculous healings. And I said, I asked them, I said, as a result of those, do people then come to faith? And they said, no, no. They said there are some people who are, who are powerful preachers who are preaching in some areas of, uh, of Malawi and Mozambique who preach a prosperity doctrine and the preachers have, have real power. They can tell what people have been doing and they have an insight and, and that power comes from the evil one. Now, if you raise this in some areas of Australia or in Australia, when I come back to Australia and I read the newspapers and uh, I, I watch the television, now uh, I have three daughters uh, none of them are living at home uh, at the moment, although, no, that's a lie. They all are at One of them is at home at the moment, but uh, I, I want to be entirely truthful, you know, seeing as how I've said you can't lie, that uh, the pastor did, but I, I'm, you know. <laughs> but uh, uh, my daughters have told me that I should stop uh, yelling at the TV. It's because I find uh, that in Australia, and I see what's happening in our society, and it just fills me with a, with a dread. And I, and I, oh, I start shouting. So, you know, maybe a function of age. Uh, but it's, it's uh, the, so when I come back to Australia, I find that the, what is here, is that the opposition comes from, we're so smart, we can figure it all out ourselves. We don't need God. Heavens, we've got full tummies. Who needs, a f who needs God when you've got full tummies? Who needs God when you've got social welfare? Who needs God when you've got science which will solve all our problems? And I sometimes think, hmm, you know, but they don't know. They don't know that actually the devil in our society tricks us by making us think that we can figure it all out by ourselves. A hundred years ago, a hundred years ago, this last week, saw the beginning of one of the worst conflagrations uh, to hit humanity. It was called the First World War. And all the smart people uh, thought that they would figure it out for their own countries and they took them to war which killed nearly 10 million people. I've been reading a book about it 
uh, about the catastrophe that was Europe. Within four months of the start of the First World War, there were one million men dead. And they fought one another for four years. The smartest people in the world at that time. So don't tell me that we can figure it all out by ourselves. You see, in our society, the opposition, the evil one, tries to fool us to think we can figure it out. Societies like Malawi and Mozambique in Indonesia know the overt action of the devil as he seeks to oppose and keep people in bondage. Here for Nehemiah, it was these people, Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem. <laughs> they were probably leaders or governors of surrounding districts and they were trying to draw him in. What did they do? Well, they, they even used spirituality. They tried to trick him. They tried to get him into the temple. They tried to get someone to uh, go and have a prayer meeting with him. <laughs> that's, you know, that's the ultimate one. The devil even uses prayer meetings. He tried to bring him in and uh, take him into the temple. Then they would have said, ah, look, he's afraid. He's afraid. But Nehemiah is a remarkable man. Nehemiah was a true leader. I've had the privilege of working with people whom I've regarded as true leaders. About 14 years ago, uh, in the work that I'm involved in in Bangladesh, we had a problem in one of our projects. And we had, uh, we had, we had masses of people coming out in demonstrations against the project in this particular area. The leaders of mosques were out against us and they had big processions up and down the road. Now in Australia, in a procession, you might get uh, a procession in George Street, but in a country like Bangladesh, you can get a procession like that. The home of rent a crowd. When I read about people who go to have uh, evangelistic campaigns in India and they come back and say, we got thousands of people. Hey, look, <laughs> in countries like Bangladesh and, and India, you just need to get a white person up the front, particularly if you get a blonde singer uh, up the front, and you'll have tens of thousands. The first time I ever met Walter White was on a country road in Bangladesh uh, and uh, I was a single bloke. Uh, Walter and Janine had a, a young baby, their eldest girl. She was about 18 months old. And I met Walter for the first time. Walter comes striding up. Hi, I'm Walt White. You know, I was a bit of a reserved Aussie, you know. I'm Maury Lee. How are you? Uh, and there we stood. There was a number of us there. Two Land Rovers. And uh, uh, within a minute... We had 100 people. Within two minutes, we had 200. Within three minutes, they, they, they came from everywhere. I thought, maybe the CIA has a satellite watching us. And they told all these people by, by uh, smoke signal or pigeons. You know, there wasn't Twitter and that in those days. And they just kept coming. And we had this huge crowd. I was just amazed. So... 
in a country like Bangladesh, getting a crowd is no problem. Absolutely none. So we had this opposition against it. They're going to close down this project. And the fellow that I work with, he died two years ago. I lost a great friend. But he was a natural leader in his own society. He rang me up. I was in prison. He said, listen, we've got to do this. He said, either the government supports us, the people that we work with support us, and God supports us. If those three support us, then uh, we can overcome this. What do you think? I said, yeah. He said, well, that's the way we'll go. I said, yeah. <laughs> and so he went and he faced those crowds. He faced them. He was like Nehemiah. He took, he took uh, uh, precautions. He got the police. He informed the government. But he went with his wife uh, to that situation. He was a true leader. You see, you have to face the opposition. That's what Nehemiah did. If God has called you to a task, you must face the opposition. True leaders will understand what is happening. And they lead the people. Now, in Proverbs it said, with many counsellors uh, there is wisdom. And that's true. A good leader talks beforehand, listens, listens, listens. Some people say to me, Morris, you talk a lot. I go to meetings and they be quiet, be quiet, because I get so excited. But I also say to people, I have listened. I have listened. I keep my ears open. And if I think there's something worth listening to, I try to shut other people up so I can listen to that. Listen. But there's also a time when you stop listening. You see, that's what Sanballat, Tobiah and Geshem the Arab tried to do. They tried to suck him in so that he would stop. So you have to know when. Now, for all of us as individuals... The evil one seeks to, to make us doubt. We not maybe not be called to some large task or even a small one. But in our own individual lives, the evil one seeks to attack us. We will find opposition. Some of that opposition is, you know, we doubt. We can doubt. We live in this society in which we are assailed by, by sceptics and by scoffers. I've stopped listening to uh, modern comics in Australia, modern comedians, because all they do is scoff. One day I think I'll, I'll, I'll become a comedian and scoff at comedians, <laughs> see how they like it. And they're just, just full, of, full of this scoffing and this scorning. And it can hurt the spirit within us. It can hurt us. I want to share finally that for us as individuals facing the opposition, we need to know what is God's plan for us and God's attitude. Psalm 103 says these wonderful words. It says this, The Lord is merciful and gracious, 
slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always rebuke us. Nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor requite us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his love for us. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our sins for us. Like as a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him, for he knows our frame, and he remembers that we are but dust. God's attitude to us is that of a loving, loving father. That is his attitude to us. In Titus chapter 3, it says these wonderful words. It says, We were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by men and hating one another. But when the goodness and kindness of God appeared to us, our sa- when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Saviour, appeared. He saved us, not because of deeds that we have done, not because of what we've, how righteous we have been, but in virtue of his own mercy, by the washing of, of renewal and the Holy Spirit. God's attitude to us is one of a loving God who has sent Jesus to save us. Don't believe the opposition of the devil. Know that, we, that God, God has called you to be his child. To be his child. Can you remember when you were a child? Can you think back to a point in your life when you were a child when maybe a parent or a teacher, or someone whom you respected, looked at you and affirmed you, said something good about you. Can you remember that? I can. I can remember the day that, uh, that uh, the principal of the primary school came and handed out uh, compositions, essays, and he handed mine out last because he'd given me full marks heavens I had to change my hat size (laughs) and and friends you know if God's attitude to us is an attitude of love then whatever the opposition is that knowing that we are God's children because of Jesus overcomes that opposition We may not have been called to build a big wall to reach the unreached, but we are called to be God's children and don't listen to the opposition of the devil. Jesus died for you. God loves you. He knows that you are just made of dust, but you've become his children. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We thank you for the scripture. We thank you that these words written so many years ago can have meaning for us today.
We thank you most of all that Jesus died for us, that he rose again, and that through him we become your children. Lord, we thank you that you are not a liar. The devil is. He tries to trick us, tries to fool us, but you are not a liar and that you love us and you've proven that through the death and resurrection of Jesus. By your Holy Spirit, Lord, today, make that real within our lives and experience. Fill us with that assurance by your Spirit that we are your children. And in Jesus' name I ask it. Amen. Thank you for that lovely word.